News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The U.S. economy grew by almost 3% last quarter, even as they have seen interest rates rising in that country. Now, here at home, Bank of Canada delivered us, of course, another rate hike yesterday. Benchmark rate now sits at 4.5%. That's the highest it's been since 2007. But the bank has also indicated that it expects to hold that rate there and wait to see what kind of an economic impact the increase is having. So what does that mean for our economy? Well, joining us now is Stephen Gordon, who's a professor of economics at Laval University. Good morning. Good morning. So when you see when you hear the bank send that message, what do you think that means? Um, well, let's see. I think it's good news, uh, certainly compared to all the fears that we had going into uh, about going into recession. Uh, at, at this point, uh, the, that soft landing that it was talking about looks to be more and more likely. Uh, we're still not seeing any increase in, inf- in unemployment. Uh, we're not seeing any increase in uh, households not being able to pay their mortgage. We're seeing a reduction in spending, which is exactly what the bank wants. So I'm looking at this thinking it's good news. The fact that there's a pause is not a promise. It's, the, it's just right now it looks good. They, the bank will move if things change. And I think we should be very clear about that. Right. Okay. But what kind of things do you think would have to change for the bank to say, nope, we were wrong, got to keep going? Uh, inflation doesn't come down as much as they think. Uh, inflation will come down automatically just once the uh, the – Russia shock of invading Ukraine goes more than 12 months past, like, you know, sometime in May, uh, that's just going to drop out and it'll probably go down to three or 4%, but the bank really wants to get down to two. So if the bank sees that we're not at two yet, and it's not looking as if we're going there, uh, the bank will definitely move because they, there's, they really do want to reach that 2% target. Right. When you use a phrase like soft landing, what, how do you explain that to Canadians? Like, what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, economic activity will slow, but since we're actually, it's we're the economy is overheating right now. We're just the a slowdown means could mean going straight, just going to normal, where we're back to a, everything's more or less balanced and everything's running smoothly. We're inflation's at two percent. That would be ideal. That would be the soft landing. Uh, we we have a slowdown and and just just to go back to normal. Uh, recession would be if we overshoot. And, you know, that's always a risk because there's no, uh, uh, there's no fine calibration that we can do. You basically right. increase the interest rate and hope for the best. And that, so far, the, the optimistic scenario is looking better. Now, Stephen, where does the housing market, do you think, fit into all this? Because clearly what's happened with the interest rates is that it has, you know, here in, in Metro Vancouver, for sure, put a bit of a freeze on the housing market. And that has contributed to so much of the, you know, economy in recent years. So how, how does that balance? Well, I mean, up until a few months ago, wasn't the issue uh, that, you know, the, there was the, there was the, the craziness in the housing market in Vancouver. Uh, it's not really clear to me that this is bad news to have it to have a bit of a pause here. We can't have. We knew that that you know they that the spike in housing prices in everywhere, I mean specifically in Vancouver and Toronto, uh, was bad news. People couldn't buy a house. The, the fact that housing prices are you know coming off their peak, you have to explain to me why that's bad news. Right. Okay. So if that that that, that can be balanced, then I guess is what yeah, I'm asking I mean, there. So you yeah, think that can is... still be managed? Yeah, I mean, bringing bringing housing prices back down to where they were, like what two years ago, is uh, that's not really you know, that's not really a crash, is it? 
No, gosh, no. And in fact, we'd like it to go probably a little bit further. I think most people here would like to see that come down even more. Right. So, I mean, so this is the thing about, you know, coming down, things being, things slowing down from a frenzy is not necessarily bad news. Okay. So what about the rest of the country then? Is You talked about how economic spending, has, consumer spending has slowed. Are we seeing that trend, do you think, right across the country? I should think so, um, because one of the reasons why people would spend less is simply because they have to pay for more, more for their mortgages. They just have less money elsewhere. So all those people who uh, who, who had variable rate mortgages and have hit the trigger rate, you know, their, their, their payments had to go up. Uh, people who are renewing their mortgages, even the fixed five-year terms, anybody who's renewing is all of a sudden paying higher, um, you know, higher, higher monthly payments. You know, anybody who's paying interest interest on anything is paying higher payments on interest. So there's less money to spend, and you know, you know, to the extent that inflation occurs when people are, you know, there's excess demand. People, too many people want to buy too many things in, that are in short supply. Uh, you know, that's basically how this works. Okay, so if the government wants this soft landing, which I think everybody does, what are some of the pitfalls then uh, for the federal government looking ahead to 2023 here? Um, it certainly should be not uh, adding to inflationary pressures. Like It's going to be important that uh, governments uh, across the country um, don't spend more than they really need to. Um, they should. This is not. This is not the time for an expansionary fiscal policy because that will just make the Bank of Canada's hard, job harder, and the bank would, would have to increase interest rates even farther. So that's certainly uh, that's certainly one of those risks that the bank uh, might have to deal with. So you, you know, the if you want to the bank if the governments want to spend more, well, they probably should be thinking of also just financing that uh, spending with uh, t- with tax increases, because when you increase taxes, that uh, takes money out of households' pockets, and that also would bring back down uh, spending. So, centrally, the governments are going to have to be quite responsible on the fiscal side, um, and that's uh, something we have to we're not looking forward in the next few months when uh, budgets start coming down. Well, yeah, exactly. Do you think that's kind of the the challenge that's going on out there right now? We had a lot of spending during the pandemic, right? And uh, people got used to it. And and certainly, and of course, in, in uh, you know, certainly in the healthcare sector, uh, the pandemic exposed lots of weaknesses. And there's a there's a certain push to, well, spend money to uh, to deal with them. And I mean, there's going to be a certain kind of a balance here. There's, there's yes, there are these real needs out there, but uh, there's also the risk of uh, worsening inflation. So you know, we got, there's going to be some hard choices to be made. And do you think that's what we're going to see when we get that federal budget coming up? I'd be under the circumstances, I'd be surprised to see if they greatly expand spending. Um, but I mean, the you know, this, this government is not particularly known for austerity, so. Uh, it would be we'll a see. change for sure. It would be. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's Stephen Gordon, professor of economics at Laval University, talking about the potential for a soft landing, economically speaking, for Canada this year, uh, with the Bank of Canada saying they're going to hold interest rates for now, uh, no more increases coming as they kind of gauge what the impact is of where things are right now at the 4.5% overnight, that benchmark rate that they have, uh, and wait to see what that what that does to the economy here in Canada. Now, I'm sure it's impacted you, right? Everybody is probably paying a little bit more, especially if you have a variable interest rate on your mortgage, you're probably paying a little bit more. Uh, and everybody is feeling squeezed these days. What have you cut out of your budget? How much more are you paying? 
let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The Vancouver Police Department has had its share of, let's say, negative headlines recently. Of course, the story of the elderly Indigenous man and his granddaughter being handcuffed at a downtown bank enraged people. I still get angry when I think about that one. But there have been others, too. Maybe you've been following the story that reporter Catherine Urquhart from Global has been covering. Three senior VPD officers now facing a code of conduct investigation over allegations they tried to interfere in a car accident investigation. Here's more on that. Last week, an off-duty senior VPD officer was involved in this collision after allegedly making an illegal left-hand turn at Royal Oak and Kingsway. Minutes later, a Burnaby RCMP traffic officer was on scene investigating. Then, several VPD members, who had been part of a women's training session nearby, arrived as well. One of them allegedly grabbed the Mountie's arm amid attempts to retrieve a cell phone, and a VPD superintendent threatened the Mountie's job. Days later, VPD Chief Palmer said this. My understanding is they were all off duty and we're doing a review of the uh, situation. Okay, how concerned are you about it? Well, we have to get the facts and find out what happened. Based on what I've heard, not that concerned. That level of concern seems to have changed as Global News has learned three senior officers Two inspectors and one superintendent have been reassigned under Section 110 of the Police Act. In a statement, the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner said, I can confirm that upon request from the Vancouver Police Department, the Commissioner will be initiating a Police Act investigation in relation to this matter. This will include the appointment of an external investigating agency and discipline authority, which will be identified in due course. There are reasons to concern, and I think uh, given the allegations and the perception of perhaps a misuse of power, I think it's an important investigation, and I'm glad that the external investigators will be looking at this as well. It's a very emotional situation anytime somebody's been injured in a car accident and emotions run high. Key in the investigation could be video from the Mounties body camera. Sources say it captured the entire incident. Burnaby RCMP have declined to confirm that, saying the investigation is ongoing. That's reporter Catherine Urquhart with that story. Let's face it, if you and I are, you know, tried to do that, tried to intimidate an officer in, you know, dealing with a crash investigation, it would be a very different outcome, wouldn't it? So Vancouver Sun columnist Ian Mulgrew has also been writing about this, making the argument that it is, quote, time to rein in the VPD. What does that mean? Let's find out. He joins us now. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So tell me, what led you to, to write this column? Um, in my opinion, the Vancouver Police Department and uh, Chief Palmer are among the most arrogant public uh, service employees um, in the province. Okay, what led you to that opinion, though? Was it an accumulation of things? Yes, uh, basically the VPD's officers' refusal to participate in uh, previous investigations into the deaths of uh, citizens and uh, Chief Palmer's attitude towards the uh, oversight of civilian organizations like the uh, in, uh, the Investigation Office of the Police Complaints Commission uh, and others. Um, and his statement, uh, you know, late last year, um, that he doesn't report to anyone, uh, including city council, the provincial or federal governments, and basically acts like a law unto himself. 
the the most recent case that we were just uh, telling people about there, the story from from Global News there, the comments about how it doesn't really concern him. What did you think when you heard that? Uh, the same as I felt when he said he doesn't report and doesn't, uh, uh, well, uh, what he said uh, with the independent investigation office, uh, when his officers were uh, refusing to, um, uh, in, you know, cooperate with investigators and uh, uh, they weren't disciplined and now we're going to have to have an inquest uh, seven years later. And he said the uh, investigations office was incompetent. Um, his attitude uh, in this in this incident is the same, uh, sort of, uh, you know, a kind of a shrug uh, after uh, his officers have acted in a way that would probably get you and me charged with obstruction of justice. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, too. I thought, boy, I wouldn't be allowed to do something like this. But what what is the recourse here, Ian? Because we can say this all we want to, but there doesn't there's no change, it seems like, at the VPD. Um, it's not just the BPD, Simi. I mean, the entire policing structure in this province um, has has been indicted uh, for almost 30 years. I mean, I remember uh, Justice, uh, former Justice Wall- and Attorney General Wally Opal's policing inquiry in the mid-90s. He concluded that we needed a regional police force because of the patchwork quilt that exists here. And every inquiry, uh, including the uh, all-party committee that looked into the Police Act last year, has concluded the same thing. Um, but the VPD, which is the largest of the policing organizations in the area, um, doesn't want it. And um, now we've got a situation where the municipal and uh, police departments sort of compete against each other uh, for officers and they've driven up salaries. Um, policing in this city is now costing um, uh, more than a million dollars a day. Um, taxpayers are uh, getting a raw deal. And quite frankly, um, these forces, which are supposed to be serving and protecting, uh, are, you know, they're overpaid and uh, they exaggerate the amount of crime we're having. And uh, uh, we're just not getting the service for what we're paying for. And and it's time for radical change. One of the stories that you use to illustrate your point in your column has to do with the death of Miles Gray in 2015. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Well, that's just one of the most outrageous cases. I mean, here's a man who is, uh, you know, del- uh, making deliveries and apparently was uh, distraught and, uh, you know, rude to a woman uh, watering her lawn during the drought that year. And police officers turned up and somehow uh, he ends up dead, being absolutely beaten to a pulp. And then the officers refused to participate in the investigation We had the uh, Independent Investigation Office uh, go to court to try and force them. We had a judgment in 2018 where Justice Miriam Groper, uh, you know, criticized them and said police officers have a duty to provide evidence. And uh, two years later, the Crown Attorney in 2020 said that uh, charges couldn't be laid because they couldn't determine cause of death. He was beaten so badly. And the officers were still refusing to um, p- uh, participate in the investigation and provide uh, witness testimony. And now, seven years later, we're going to have a coroner's inquest. Um, I'm not even sure that the officers can be forced to testify at it. And even if they do, I'm sure they're going to say they can't remember it seven years ago. It's just an outrageous situation. These officers should have been fired. 
And yet we also heard this week that the chief is getting an extension on his contract. It doesn't seem like there's any will for any change there. Well, of course there's not. The mayor has, uh, you know, bought their votes by promising another hundred officers. Um, and let's face it, these are high school graduates with six months training and recruits are earning $80,000 a year. Um, by the time they become a constable, they'll be earning over $100,000 a year four years later. Um, it's just absolutely outrageous. And what kind of response have you gotten from your column? Because I know people, well, they get very sensitive, right, when you try to criticize police. Well, actually, the only people uh, who have uh, criticized my column uh, is a former police union uh, leader and uh, current police union leader. And uh, the public that have responded overwhelmingly have supported me. So, you know, I think there's uh, the public will there. We saw the all-party committee agree um, that change is needed. And the only people that appear to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, refusing are the police themselves and government leaders um, in both the municipal level and the provincial level who rely on police to uh, help them during campaigns and um, are afraid to take on police because, let's face it, um, you know, as uh, a member of parliament said a few years ago, um, after he criticized the RCMP in the province, uh, he has to live here. Now, people are afraid of what the police might do. Hmm. Ian, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, always a delight, Simi. That's Ian Mulgrew, Vancouver Sun columnist. You can read his latest piece at VancouverSun.com where he talks about whether or not it's time to rein in the Vancouver Police Department. Plenty of examples for him to choose from there, too. This is Mornings with Simi. How can we tackle the staffing shortages in rural health care? These shortages are leading to real problems like closed emergency rooms in small towns, limited availability to family doctors. And you know what? You can't just drive down the street and find another clinic or another ER to go to. These are some, some of the smaller communities in our province. We also know, though, that almost half of the healthcare workers fired who did not get themselves immunized against COVID-19 actually worked in the Northern Health Authorities and Interior Health Authorities. And that's where we're seeing a lot of these problems too. So rural BC mayors have banded together to lobby the provincial government to help them out with this. We spoke to the mayor of Merritt earlier this week about that. Right now, we're going to be speaking with Shirley Bond, BC Liberal MLA and health critic. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Always a pleasure. Thank you, uh, Simi. What do you think is the best way to handle this situation? Clearly, rural mayors need some help. Well, we continue to see, uh, you know, in the part of the province where I live, uh, rolling closures of ERs, and we have a significant challenge. We know that healthcare uh, has a a crisis all across British Columbia, but it's been very acute uh, in northern and rural communities. So one of the things that we called for as long ago as last June, was that we have a conversation about what a pathway back to work might look like for people uh, who, who are no longer working in the system. Um, and so we think that having that conversation is important. We called for it last June when the federal government lifted uh, the mandate for federal employees, and we still believe that there should be a conversation about a pathway back to work. Oh, and has there been any suggestion that that might happen? Do you see any progress on that front? None. And I, I think what should concern British Columbians, and, you know, we followed 
uh, and have been supportive of public health orders from the beginning of the pandemic. And we need to be clear about that. But when you look across the country, Simi, we see other jurisdictions who have made the decision to bring those workers back to work. What we're saying is let's at least have a conversation about how that's working in other jurisdictions and let's put it in the context of the the absolutely uh, horrendous circumstances that we're seeing in many small communities, the latest of which, of course, is Elkford, which is, you know, has been struggling for months now, and that continues to happen. So we're saying, let's have a conversation about it. Other jurisdictions have had a look at it. Let's talk about what a robust safety protocol looks like, looking at what other measures could be put in place. So do you think a lot of those nurses are available to come back, though? Like, do we know that they all want to come back to those jobs? Well, I can tell you that we certainly hear from them. And I'm certain that the government hears from them as well. And, and you know, the other concern is those, uh, you know, those uh, healthcare professionals are also mobile. They can choose to go elsewhere. And that's the last thing we need. I think that, you know, the concern that we have is that, you know, when you wait more than five years to lay out a health human resources strategy and you look at training, training is essential. We agree with that. We need to add more training spaces. We need to look at internationally educated medical professionals. Absolutely. But in the short term, what are we going to do? And this is one question that the government refuses to take a look at. And the other, of course, is physician assistance. And again, I asked Minister Dick specifically in estimates in the spring of 2022 to take a look at whether there was a role for physician assistance. Here we are almost a year later, and we're still having that conversation. And what are you hearing from people in Prince George and in that area Mm -hmm. then about staffing shortages? Well, obviously, um, first and foremost, many, many, well, up to a million British Columbians and many in this part of the province don't have a family physician. And so what that does is it drives people uh, who don't have that longitudinal care into ERs, uh, into emergency rooms, into clinics. And so we see, you know, overcapacity in virtually every single healthcare facility. And so that's a huge challenge. You First of all, you need a family physician so that you can have that care basically from birth to death. And that takes people out of the emergency rooms. So, you know, we see healthcare professionals that are exhausted. You know, I, I talk to nurses regularly here in Prince George. You know, they have been on the front lines through the pandemic. They are tired. They are overworked. They need help. Uh, Physicians who are considering retiring, you know, when you think about that, I I know a physician uh, that that is looking at at trying to uh, retire to end her practice, and yet she can't find someone to take over. So it's just a layer of issues. And what we're saying is, let's at least be practical enough to say, what are the short-term things that might make a difference? And so a pathway back to work should at least be considered, um, uh, and also can we use physician assistance in British Columbia? Would that help the beleaguered healthcare professionals? So if we did it for nurses, should we mm-hmm. do it elsewhere? Should we do it for paramedics? Well, I think that we need to have all hands on deck. And I think most British Columbians would agree with that. Now, we are, we are very clear that, you know, when, it, when we look at a pathway back to work, that means we need to talk about robust safety uh, protocols. Uh, do we need to have regular testing, PPE? Um, there's also those that, that level of barrier that, that, you know, is frequently talked about. Stay home when you're sick and washing your hands frequently, all of those kinds of things. I guess what concerns me is when British Columbia... Um, you know, refuses to even have that conversation. When we look across the country, 
those changes have been made in the majority of jurisdictions. We need all hands on deck, Simi. We have a health care crisis in British Columbia. We need to look at short-term solutions and then, of course, look at the things over the longer term, like training, like recruitment. Most importantly right now, we need to retain the healthcare professionals that we have or the situation is just going to continue to erode in our province. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Shirley Bond is a BC Liberal MLA and critic for the health ministry, talking about one of the ways to help rural communities get more staff. Their suggestion is maybe we should bring back the workers who were fired because they didn't get vaccinated. Almost half of the workers who were fired for that worked in the Interior and Northern Health Authorities, and that's where we are seeing a lot of these staffing shortages. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, that cold weather is headed our way. It's already spreading across the country. You're seeing pretty cold temperatures throughout Ontario, southern Ontario, seeing some snowstorms in the last 24 hours. They're going to see more snow coming up in the days ahead. But what about us? What about this Arctic air that we hear about, this polar vortex from Siberia? Well, let's get the details on how this is going to impact you. Jonathan Bowes with us now, Environment Canada meteorologist. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Simi. I guess this kind of makes your job very interesting when some of these weather phenomena show up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's also very interesting to have people talking about the, the weather, um, especially if it's something, you know, a, a drastic change from what we're uh, experiencing. Jonathan, everywhere you go, people must want to talk about the weather with you. Uh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> right? Like you go for dinner at somebody's house, don't they want to ask you all about the weather? Usually, yeah, if it's uh, something significant, especially in Vancouver, when we're talking about the cold or snow, um, definitely that's the uh, topic of the evening. Okay, well, the topic for us right now is this kind of, we keep hearing the words polar vortex. Is that accurate? Yes, um, but fortunately for us, that's uh, still a ways in the Arctic, um, in the Canadian Arctic, and uh, at least for us, we're just at the extent, uh, the the far reaches of the uh, the polar vortex. So how is that going to impact us, and when will we see it? Yes. So uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, we have this cold pole of air sitting over Hudson Bay, and that will be uh, kind of in place for the next five to six days. Um, and that will, of course, bring the cold temperatures across the country. And that will move towards the south coast uh, beginning Friday night into uh, the weekend. And so with this cold, uh, Arctic cold front that's going to spill over the Rockies and then eventually over the coast mountains in, uh, to, towards the lower mainland, uh, we're expecting to see the uh, temperatures bottom out this weekend, Saturday night, Sunday night, to about minus 5 um, at YVR. And just to give a little bit of context, the seasonal uh, overnight low is plus 1. Okay, but looking at Saturday in particular here, Jonathan, we go from a daytime high of 6 mm-hmm. degrees mm-hmm. to an overnight low of minus 5. That is a huge swing in one day. Yes, um, and of course, yes, just just. Uh, due to that uh, Arctic front making making its way through the uh, the coast mountains, and of course with uh, the passage of that front, we're, we will experience some outflow winds through Howe Sound into the Fraser Valley. So there will be a little bit of wind chill associated with that um, initially with with that front coming through this weekend. And what about other parts of the province? How cold will it get? Uh, well, we, we move into the central interior, so they uh, they will start uh, beginning uh, tonight into Friday. And, uh, for example, Prince George, we're looking at a low of minus 21 for Saturday night. Their uh, seasonal overnight low is minus 13. Kelowna, forecast of minus 11. Seasonal is minus 7. Okay, so it is definitely going to be colder. That sounds like um, a lot colder than those normal temperatures. Yeah, so for the province in general, we're looking at about a 5 to 10 degree 
uh, drop in uh, uh, temperatures, both for the overnight low and the daytime high compared to seasonal norms. Um, but of course, just with the mild uh, January that we've had so far, the, the change will, will appear to be more drastic. Okay. So how long is this going to last? Well, fortunately, this uh, Arctic air, uh, air mass is not going to last as long as it did, uh, you know, back in December. Um, we're forecasting it to stay around to about midweek. Um, we do have uh, an upper ridge sitting offshore in the Pacific, so that's going to block some of that Pacific system coming in uh, initially through the through the weekend. But once that breaks down, then we'll start to see some uh, milder air uh, usher in for about midweek. Okay, so how would you rate, Jonathan, this winter so far in terms of our averages? Um, well, with with averages so far, uh, it, it, it you know it's, it does kind of temper the the, the extreme cold and warm. I mean, uh, recall that back in December we've had uh, a reasonably long cold stretch. Um, you know, we had you know a four day stretch of where where we didn't even break minus six degrees as a daytime high just before Christmas. Um, and for January thus far, we're sitting at about a degree, uh, if you're just looking at the daytime highs, we're sitting about a degree below uh, what we were um, normally. And uh, say, and then if we even go back to, say, 2010, the Olympics, you know, it was quite mild that year. I remember, yeah. Yeah, it was for, for the January 29th, it was 11.6 degrees at the uh, daytime high. I'm going to ask you the big, that four-letter word question. Yes. Is there snow <laughs> in the forecast? So with the Arctic front moving through uh, on Saturday, there might be just a little bit of flurry activity just as that uh, front goes through. You know, the cold air will just scour out all that moisture. Um, You know, we're looking at uh, cloudy skies and drizzle right now, so any of that moisture will get squeezed out with that uh, Arctic front pushes through. But once that uh, moves um, uh, through and we can settle into uh, Arctic air, uh, we'll actually remain fairly dry and sunny. And so when the the upper ridge breaks down, uh, kind of, say, the Wednesday time frame, and the first system that moves in, there is a chance that, you know, we'll, we'll see a little bit of snow initially, but because the Arctic air is in particularly cold, it's not particularly deep, um, you know, we'll, we'll quickly transition to rain. Okay. I hope you're right about that. Uh, fingers crossed on it, Jonathan. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Big announcements yesterday that the B.C. government, along with partners, will protect a rare ecosystem in the interior. This is near Revelstoke, about 29 kilometres west of Revelstoke. Let's find out the size of this and what it means. Joining us now is George Heyman, B.C.'s Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Good morning. Tell me about this area. Well, this area is uh, quite incredible and quite unique. First of all, we're creating a new conservancy of over 58,000 hectares uh, and in addition uh, just south of there another 17,000 hectares will be declared off limits to logging uh, activity. This is an area I've been hearing about since I was uh, actually before I became minister but certainly when I was minister. uh, Environmental organizations and local residents uh, realize this is a very unique and rare inland temperate rainforest. There are uh, there's grizzly bears habitat, there's old growth forests, towering hemlock and red cedar. Some of them are more than a thousand years old. There's 
250 species of rare lichens, and people have thought this should be protected for a very long time. So yesterday's announcement accomplished this. It is the most significant uh, conservation area announced in uh, British Columbia in over a decade, and this is the first of the old-growth deferral areas to receive permanent protection. Okay, so what does it mean when you establish a conservancy there? What does that mean for access and people who might want to see how beautiful this area is? Well, that will be determined. We will be developing a collaborative management plan with uh, all of the nations in the area who have uh, rights, title, and interest uh, in the area. But uh, it's important to know there is no access to the area right now. The only access was a single logging road, which was closed and gated uh, about six years ago because it became dangerous. Uh, the bridges were were unsafe, so nobody is actually able to get in there now. I think when we uh, discussed the management of the area with the uh, the First Nations, there, there could possibly be recreational opportunities. Um, anything that doesn't disturb the uh, the natural habitat is allowed in a conservation area as opposed to a Class A park, which was why we chose this mechanism so that we could work with the, um, the, the First Nations in the area and plan a route forward together. Right, because I guess that's the curiosity that people will have, isn't it? That they will read about this, they'll think, wow, this sounds amazing the way you described it. I'd like to see it. Well, and uh, one of the things that we know with some particularly rare areas is uh, people do want to see it, and you have to manage that in a way that doesn't actually destroy the habitat and ecosystem values that people are coming to see. That that can be done. Um, I think the, the First Nations in the area probably have a better sense uh, than we do about what kinds of activities can be sustained on that land base to protect the uh, the ecological values that exist there. But uh, the other reason to establish a conservancy is we all depend on uh, biodiversity. We, we depend on healthy ecosystems and representative ecosystems. Uh, old growth forests store carbon. Uh, much of the value of this area may exist in things that we don't see directly in our recreational activity, but we experience by protecting water, by protecting air, by protecting a, a variety of uh, plant and animal species, and by uh, protecting ourselves against climate change. Is that one of the challenges, though, that you face as Environment Minister? Is that, yeah, you want to save these areas, but people also these days, especially since the pandemic, they really want access to more outdoor space. And we're working on that. We uh, we have a significant uh, three-year capital plan that is uh, adding campsites and provincial parks. It's uh, upgrading facilities. We we are constantly looking for new park areas, some of which are uh, available for conservation values and some of which uh, are there for recreation and some of which accommodate both. I think there, there will be uh, some form of access, I suspect, to the Incomaplu Valley for hikers and others. And I think what we need to do is determine with um, Indigenous people how to do that in a way uh, that maintains uh, these values, this beauty, this environmental integrity for generations so people can both benefit from it and enjoy it recreationally. You mentioned this has been a 10-year process. What does it take to save an area like this? Well, it, it, it takes, uh, we have a history in British Columbia. We have uh, mineral and forest tenures over much of the land base. We've committed ourselves to reconciliation with Indigenous people. So what it takes is sometimes a, a willing seller and a willing buyer. In this case, we had significant partners. Interfor uh, 
agreed to surrender over 75,000 hectares in their tree farm license. Uh, They received some compensation for that that was uh, put together by the Nature Conservancy of Canada. But um, all of these factors came together along with the provincial government's uh, willingness to look at. uh, There are some mineral tenures in the Conservancy that uh, we will have to negotiate uh, compensation for. So these things have to take place. I I will say that... uh, I received a communication from Interfor um, yesterday that really indicated how happy and proud they were to have been part of this announcement. So I, I think we're seeing a shift in um, in attitudes all across British Columbia. We we know that it, environmental values are high for British Columbians, and and when industry sees that they um, they have a contribution to make and they're willing to work with groups like the Nature Conservancy, Indigenous people, and the provincial government, uh, we can make these things happen. We know we have other deferred areas of old growth around the province. Um, they were deferred so they could remain intact while we had the kinds of discussions with. First Nations and with uh, operators and with communities that uh, resulted in this case in the Ancomaplu Conservancy. Do you foresee other areas perhaps being added to the list and other projects that you've got that you're working on? Well, we uh, we have a commitment to implement all of the recommendations of the Old Growth Strategic Review. We know that uh, we have a commitment to uh, change the way we do forestry in uh, British Columbia, both adding value to the timber we take and also ensuring that we uh, we place ecosystem integrity at the heart of um, our activities on the land. That's what the recommendation of the strategic review was. So the first step was deferrals, and we're in process of discussions with uh, Indigenous people, with communities, with people who work in the industry, and with the logging companies. Uh, there will be more because we know that... Um, this old growth and the values that it represent are irreplaceable. What we want to do is ensure that we um, we assess these areas properly, maintain the uh, <clears throat> the proper uh, representative representation of uh, of species, uh, uh, trees, wildlife, wildlife corridors, etc. And this is going to be a process that I uh, I hope people will be hearing much more about in terms of results in the near future. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's George Heyman, BC's Minister of the Environment and Climate Change Strategy, talking about this area, this conservancy that was established. They made the announcement yesterday. It's uh, the Incomaplu Valley. It's about 20, maybe 30 kilometers west of Revelstoke. And it's the size of about, they said, roughly 150 Stanley Parks. Pretty sizable, right? So this is going to be uh, set aside. It is a conservancy now. And whether or not people get access to it, I mean, I think that is the big question for a lot of people. That is going to be determined, but they're going to find some path forward on that.